Many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father, we thank you this morning for the glorious truths that this passage holds for us. Father, I pray that as we study this text, you would open our eyes to see the gracious adoption that is offered to us through the redemption of Christ. And as we meditate on that truth, that our hearts would be stirred towards adoration and praise. Father, do this for your glory and for our good. We ask this in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. In his book, Adopted for Life, Dr. Russell Moore, I have no relation, he shares this illustration. He says, imagine for a moment that you're adopting a child. And as you meet with the social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told that this 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempted, attempting repeatedly to skin animals alive. He also acts out sexually, which the social worker says, although she doesn't really fill you in on what that means. And she continues to tell you a little family history. This boy's father, his grandfather, his great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. And each one of them ended their own lives. Now think for a minute. Would you want this child? If you did adopt him, wouldn't you watch nervously as he played with your other children? Would you leave the room as he watched a movie on TV with your kids? Or would you watch him nervously as he looks at the knife on the kitchen table? Well, Dr. Moore then identifies this problematic 12-year-old. He's you and he's me. That's what the gospel tells us. That's what Paul in this passage tells us. But praise God that though there was nothing in us to draw him to us, God determined to redeem us. Unless that sound like an exaggeration of our own evil and sinfulness, look at the cross. Look at the picture of God's wrath towards sin. It was no minor offense for which Jesus died. So Paul starts this, this passage in 323, he starts it by showing who we once were. He bounces between law and gospel through the whole thing, but he begins by saying that before faith came, we were under the law, and Paul uses a couple of illustrations here to describe what that looked like. First, he says, we're captive or we're imprisoned. The law served as a warden to us. No matter how hard we tried to keep the law, it still ruled over us. Even if, even if we did everything that that warden told us to do, do you know where we still were at the end of the day? We were in prison. We were needed someone to set us free. The second illustration that he uses later on is that of, uh, of a 
parent a guardian. The law is our guardian. Now, in ancient Roman society, uh, keeping your heritage going was like of super importance. And so one of two things would happen. If you weren't able to have kids, when a family found that out, they would really quickly try to find a young man, to, specifically a man, to be adopted and then to be raised so that he could carry on the family tradition. Or if you were fortunate enough to have children, they would take that son and then they would send him off to be cared for and trained, usually by guardians. Well, in ancient Roman society, that heir apparent was often raised by servants. And even though everything belonged to him, it wasn't realized until he reached maturity. In this situation, the child is no different than a slave. So, so Paul uses these two illustrations, one of us being imprisoned and one of a child being enslaved by uh, other servants or being no different than those servants. It reminds me that I have some pretty awesome kiddos, which is in no doubt due to their mother. Now, if I give my kids all sorts of laws or rules about how they're supposed to behave and live in my house, and by some small miracle, they keep them, they do them, the question is this. Are my children mature because they can keep the laws? Well, no, they're, they're still children. Likewise, the law, if we keep it to perfection, it doesn't grant us the righteousness needed to be near the Father. So what Paul is reminding the church at Galatia in this passage, and what he's telling us is that if you are trying to earn the approval and the favor of God by doing something, you'll never get there. Reading your Bible, going to church, fasting, praying, discipling others, you name it, not a single one of those things makes God more pleased with you. So what's our status? What is our old status before Christ? Well, we are captive, imprisoned, immature, unwanted children in desperate need of someone to fix our problems because in and of ourselves we have no hope. We can't break free from prison. We can't make ourselves more mature and we can't earn righteousness or favor with God. What a bummer of a sermon. But fortunately, there's a couple of those big buts in this passage that give us hope. Right? Verse three, chapter 3, verse 25. But now, faith has come. Chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come. So, we have to ask the question, what is this faith coming, and what does he mean by the fullness of time? Well, back in Genesis 15, which Byron talked about this a little bit last week, you remember that God made a covenant promise to Abraham. And he told Abraham, he said, Abraham, I will make you a blessing to all nations by my offspring. And what did Abraham do? Abraham believed the promise of God. And because he believed the promise of God, what did God give him? He counted it as righteousness, is what the author of Hebrews tells us. So God, in his wisdom, he chose to fulfill that promise that he made to Abraham at just the right time in history. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This faith that Abraham had in the promise that God gave him and the faith that all the Jews at that point that had in that promise that God had given was being made sight in the person of Jesus. And here's the thing. When we place our faith that God graciously gives us in the one who can set us free from our bondage to sin and the law, we're granted a new status. 
When we place our faith in Jesus, what does God call us? Sons. We are adopted as sons. We've been adopted. Now, J.I. Packer, and I'm going to quote him quite a bit in this sermon because he's got a, a chapter in a book that's really helpful in this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and even his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. He would go on to say that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. So for the next 30 minutes or so, I want to unpack five ways in which we see how things change God as, with God as our father. Five, five things, 30 minutes. So six minutes for each thing. It won't take us long, all right? So here we go, five things. The first one that we see is that when God grants us a new status as son, he gives us a new position. Now, let's jump back to chapter three, verse 25. Paul says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And then in chapter four, verse three, he says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, we've just talked about what it's like to be outside of Christ. We've talked about the negative of that. Well, what's the flip side of that? What does it mean for us to be in Christ? Well, Paul tells us in these verses that inside of Christ, we are free sons. Our position in relation to God and the law has both changed. The law has held us captive, showing that we can never meet God's righteous standard. But God's redemption through Christ sets us free from the law because Christ lived under the law for us. Now, instead of trying to meet God's standard, we acknowledge that God has met the standard for us. Positionally, in Christ, we are now holy. Positionally, in Christ, we are now righteous. This means that when God looks at us, what does he see? He sees Christ. For in Christ Jesus, verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, this new position as a son of God is the basis for the rest of our life. Our sonship, it gives us a new last name. Now, I have personally made it a goal of myself to always try and coach my kids' little leagues team. This is just something I wanted to do. My dad coached my little league team. Uh, I love sports. If my kids love sports and they want to do it, I want to be there to do it. I want to be a part of it, okay? Now, in this process, the past couple of years, one of the things that's been fun is getting to know the other kids on his team, the people that are in his class, or you're older, you're younger. But as we come to be a baseball team or a soccer team or a basketball team, it becomes pretty clear what each kid's personality is like. And those personalities, uh, you also begin to see a little bit of what parental expectations there are of these children. Now, I love doing it. It's a lot of fun, and I love those kids. But as I hang out with those kids and try to coach those kids and teach them how to kick the ball, which I don't know how to do that, or throw the ball or shoot the ball, only one of those kids at the end of the day am I really responsible for. And only one of those kids do I have ultimate influence over. And that's my kid. I have a certain set of expectations for my son to behave and to treat others in a certain way. And usually, that set of expectations is a reflection of me, right? As a parent, we want our kids to either turn out like us or better than us. So we set expectations, whether we actually tell them or just 
force it upon them that, that they would be a certain way. Well, if your position is in Christ and you are a son of God, then God the Father has a certain set of expectations for his children. And those set of expectations are how you live and behave. Now, I want to be careful here because we can tend to fall into some sort of legalism and say, son, if you want me to be happy with you, then you have to do this thing. I asked Walker this week, I said, hey, bud, so what do you have to do to make me love you? What was your answer? Nothing. There's nothing that my son has to do to make me love him. And if me, who I try my best to be a good dad, treats my son that way, how much more does God the Father look at us? He looks at us and he says, I have a certain set of expectations. And even if you can't keep them because you can't, I still love you. But because my son knows that I love him and because he loves me, how does he want to live? He wants to live in a way that honors his dad and that glorifies his dad and that brings joy to his dad. If your position is in Christ, then the life you live is one in which you seek to bring the Father glory. It's, it's a natural relationship. It's not one that's forced or you're trying to earn his love or his approval. It's just what you do because you love your Father and you know your Father loves you. So if that's the case, then when God gives you a law or a rule, like I give my son a law or a rule, it's not oppressive. It's out of love that he gives us. The law doesn't become something that's negative. Instead, it becomes something that's good. But here's our challenge, right? Proverbs 26, 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. We tend to look back at our life outside of Christ and we think that's better. Man, the, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the, the lust of the flesh, that tastes better. It's easier. I want that. We want to run back to our old life just like a dog runs back to vomit. When we think of our life as orphans, as immature children, and as slaves, do we really think that that's better than what our Heavenly Father has to offer us? When we begin to know and grasp the goodness of our Father and the depths of his love, why would we ever want to run back to our old self? So church, let me ask you this. Do you understand your position? Do you know what it means to be a child of God? Do you value it? Do you daily remind yourself of the privilege you have as his son or his daughter? And if so, are you walking in a way that honors the one who adopted you? Our adoption gives us a new position, son of God. The second thing we see that we're given as God's children is new clothes. Look back at chapter three with me. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Paul, what he's doing here is he takes the idea of baptism and he gives it as a picture of our new reality. Now, I've always thought about baptism as in the moment, right? Like baptism is me dunking you, buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. But one of the things I learned this week that I thought was pretty cool, many commentaries pointed out, is that in Old Testament culture, what would happen to children as they passed from immaturity to maturity, they were now realizing their inheritance, there would actually be a set of new clothes that they would be given. So they would shed their old clothes as a sign of leaving behind childness, and they would put on new clothes as a, step of, as a sign of now I'm mature. 
Now I'm an heir. Now I'm realizing the inherit, my inheritance. Well, throughout the New Testament, baptism is pictured as the same thing. It's pictured as an identifier, like a new set of clothes that we put on. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Now, when you read this verse at face value, I can see how it would be easy to take it and associate baptism with salvation. As a matter of fact, when you read the New Testament, baptism and salvation are almost always very closely used together. Why? Well, it's like putting on a wedding ring, right? Just got married, we said I do, we exchange rings, but we do that the minute that the marriage happens, that the covenant is sealed. The rings don't make me married, it's a symbol of my marriage. That's the same thing with baptism. Now, here's why we know Paul is not associating baptism with salvation here. Remember what the Judaizers were doing to the church in Galatia? Remember what they're sneaking in there saying? They're saying, look, your faith in Jesus is good, but if you really want to be a child of God, you know what you got to do? You got to be circumcised. You got to be circumcised, otherwise it's not real. In chapter three alone, Paul uses the word faith 15 times, and he uses the word baptism once. It wouldn't make sense for Paul to say, no, circumcision is what's necess not necessary for salvation. You don't have to do that. You can get rid of that. But now you got to be baptized, right? That's just, that's removing one law and adding another. So, so what Paul is doing here is he's saying, no, your salvation is by faith alone. And if your salvation is by faith alone, then what's the purpose of baptism? Well, this imagery helps us see physically what spiritually has happened. We studied in Sunday school this morning, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When God redeems and adopts us, he delivers us from our old status of a captive slave. That identity dies. The picture of baptism shows that that identity of a, a slave, of an immature child, has been killed. He's being buried. The old is being taken off. It's set aside. Now what's happening? I'm being raised to walk in newness of life. I'm putting on clothes of righteousness. That's what baptism is. It's not a righteousness that we earn. Rather, it's a righteousness that the Father has set aside for his children. So, if this is true, then we have a couple questions to ask. Have you been baptized as a believer? If not, what are you waiting for? If not... If you have been baptized, then how should you view yourself? If, if God is your father and you do have a new set of clothes on, what's your view of who you are? Is it robed in righteousness? Because if you're in Christ, that's how God sees you. You've already been given his name and his approval. There's nothing that you can do that will make him love you any more, and there's nothing that you can do that will make him love you any less. Are you daily dwelling on the love of God that clothes you in Christ's righteousness? So, we've got those two things. The third thing that we see in our adoption is that it gives us a new identity. Look back with me to chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, Paul picks these three categories for a reason. He's doing something really specific in this moment. I actually meant to have this quote in here, but I don't. In ancient Greece, or in ancient Rome, there was a prayer that was often associated to Socrates uh, that the pagans would pray. And they would pray to the gods, gods, thank you for not making me a Greek. 
And thank you for not making me a barbarian. And thank you, God, for not making me a slave. And thank you, God, for not making me a woman. That's what the ancient Roman society would pray. Now, do you know what the ancient Jewish society would pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for not making me a Gentile. Thank you for not making me a slave. And thank you for not making me a woman. So Paul is attacking something here. He's attacking an identifier that is prominent in both of the worlds that are existing in Galatia, right? He's firing bullets at something that these people have held on to forever. And here's the deal. When we base our identity on our race, Jew or Gentile, or our status, slave or rich or poor, or our gender, we tend to do one of two things. We either begin to think of ourselves as higher than anyone who's not like us, or we tend to think that we're always the victim. Now, one commentary made the comment that almost all wars in all of history have occurred because somebody had a disagreement in one of these three areas. In fact, if you look in our society today, it almost seems like our whole political system is thriving on either your race or your status or your gender, right? So I'm either a conservative Republican who stands for the morality of the culture, for the unity of the family, led by good fathers, or, or I'm a liberal Democrat who believes in the freedom of the individual and the inclusion of all and that all people should be elevated and have a free chance and that we should help those who can't help themselves. Now, regardless of where you stand on this spectrum, how do you look at the other side? You either look at them with anger or with pity. You're either on your high horse or you're suffering from oppression. An identity built on any one of these three things, you know what it leads to? It leads to division and hatred. If this is where you find your identity, if you're finding your identity in your race or in your status or in your gender, you're enslaved. You're enslaved to constantly trying to find freedom. You're trying to find freedom from the oppression that the other side is forcing on you, or you're enslaved of trying to force your way on other people. Regardless, where are you? You're enslaved. So even if you achieve your goal, right? The Republicans win. Woohoo! Nomination wins, legislation happens. The liberals win. Woohoo! They enforce all of their whatever they want to do. You know what they spend the rest of their time doing? Fighting the other side. But that's the beauty of adoption. When God steps in, he redeems you from that. And he says, my identity is not based on lordship of my gender, race, or status, or oppression of the other's gender, race, and status. Now my identity is based on Christ. For we're all one in Christ. As one commentator said, he said the, the gospel integrates these differences in people. Rather than the gospel destroying your race or your status or gender, rather it helps you begin from a position of I'm in Christ and now I can live out my race and my status and my gender in a way that honors God and, and serves others. In Christ, these differences enhance rather than detract the unity of the body and they enrich the mutual interdependence and service of its members. 
In other, in other words, it's a oneness. The gospel is a unifier because such differences cease to be a barrier and cause of pride or regret or embarrassment. And they become rather a means to display the diverse richness of God's creation and grace, both in the acceptance of the all and in the gifting of the each. Here's the thing. The gospel doesn't destroy the fact that you're white or black or American or Hispanic or African It doesn't destroy the fact that you're a boss or an employer or a male or a female. Rather, it removes that as your fundamental identity and it replaces it with son of God, daughter of God. And if that's your starting point, you're able to live as a son of God and a male or a daughter of God and a female. We have the best in the truest fellowship when we recognize our diversity but see it as less important than our unity in Christ. As David Platt said, so this is the beauty of the church summed up in one verse. It's a people not united by their ethnicity or their socioeconomic status or gender. It's not by this or that artificial distinction set up in a particular culture or society but it's a group of people from all ethnicities, socioeconomic statuses, and genders united together as one in Christ. We all stand before the same God, needing Christ, dependent upon Christ. Not one of us is better or worse. All of us need grace, and we find it in Christ alone, through whom we have all become sons of God. So here's the question. Where are you finding your identity? Is it based in how you vote? Is it based in where you live or your heritage? Where are you finding your security? Are you safe because of what your bank account says? Or are you insecure because of what your bank account says? How about your view of others? What about your view of the people across the room? How do you view them? Is it as one in Christ or separate? Do you view yourself as over and against them or as united in the body? Our adoption by God, it gives us a new position. It gives us new clothing. It gives us a new identity. And next, on the heels of this, it gives us a new family. Now, our unity in Christ isn't just a unity in oneness, but it's also a unity in need and status as a savior, for a savior. If you marked in your Bibles as we read through this, you saw the word in chapter three, Christ, a whole lot. But then did you see what kind of switched in verse four? It's still used in chapter three, but when we switched to chapter four, the word son or heir or offspring was used a lot. Now, if I'm a son of the father and you're a son or a daughter of the father, what does that make us? Family. We're brothers and sisters. I know, I know. You don't get to choose all your brothers and sisters, and and some of you would prefer to not be family. But in Christ, here we are. Of all the images used in the New Testament to describe the church, the family is one of the most often used. Now, there's several implications from this. If God is the one who creates this family, how long will this family last? For eternity. Forever. You're stuck with me. I'm sorry. You get me. But the good news is, you don't get me like this. You get me in the glorified state. So there's hope yet, all right? So it's all right. Now, my dad has told us, told me and my siblings wisely, he said, cultivate your relationship with your siblings because that's the longest relationship you'll ever have. If I'm lucky, I'll get to know my mom and dad for 60 years, 70 years maybe, right? But I'll know my siblings from birth. 70, 80, 90 years is a possibility. 
But that relationship will end because one of us will die. What about our relationship? How long will yours and my relationship last? If our relationship lasts for eternity, how does that change how we should live together? How we should cultivate our relationships? What about when we come into conflict with one another? How does that change how we handle conflict between each other? Our new family is eternal. It lasts forever. forever. But it's also led by a father. What kind of father is he? What kind of father do we have? J.I. Packer said, God will go out of his way to make his children feel love for them and know their privilege and security as members of his family. Here's the deal. I love my kids. I love them more than I could even begin to have grasped that I could love them. It pales in comparison to the love that the Father has for you. It doesn't even come close. He loves us like that. And because he loves us, you know what? We're secure. We're in his hand. God doesn't forget his kids. He doesn't accidentally leave them at school or at the ballpark during practice. God doesn't do that. He will never leave you or forsake you. You are safe with him. He will never let you go. You'll always be in his family. It doesn't matter what you do. He won't reject you. He'll always love you. You are forever his. Our family is eternal. And it's led by a really, really good father. But in Romans 8, 16 and 17, Paul says something else about this family. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Who's our older brother? Jesus is. You... I've got a good older brother. He ain't ain't that good. Jesus is your older brother. And if Jesus is our older brother, if if we are co-heirs with him, this, on one hand, this doesn't compromise his divinity, right? We're not like him, right? But he's he's still our brother. If if he is our brother and we are co-heirs with him, what does that mean awaits us? Well, it's the same thing that awaits our brother. We get the same inheritance our brother gets. Now, that's good news and that's bad news. That's bad news, why? Well, it's bad news because how was Jesus' life lived? Well, he suffered and he was persecuted. So being in the family with Jesus will likely bring suffering. And it could even cost us our lives. But it's also good news because if we share in his sufferings, what else do we get? His glory. His glory. This is a good family, and it's one that you want to be into, adopted into. So, church, let me ask you this. You look across this room, how do you feel about this family? How are you seeking to cultivate relationships with your brothers and sisters across the room? Packer asked the question Do you look forward daily to that great family occasion when the children of God will finally gather in heaven before the throne of God their Father? with their brother and their Lord. Have you felt the thrill of this hope? Does it, does it excite you to know that we get to be together for eternity? Are you proud of your father? Are you proud to be in his family? 
by which his grace you belong. Finally, does your family likeness, does it appear in you? Does the likeness of the older brother, is it shining forth in you? If so, awesome. If not, why? So our new status in Christ, being adopted sons, it gives us a new position, new clothing, new identity, a new family, and finally, the last one, a new experience. Look back with me at Galatians chapter four, verse six. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now there's several things going on in this verse. We tend to think about a spiritual experience. We want to have one, right? Frank, I didn't get your story. Can I tell your spiritual experience? So, so but we have, in, in our spiritual experience, we have a danger of like, we want to go do something or have a moment where it's almost like a psychedelic drug. I'm using Frank's story. This isn't my story. Frank, when he got saved, I kind of want to have you come up and tell it. But I, anyway. Frank, when he got saved, he was, he was seeking God and, and uh, some friends invited him to a charismatic church. And so they were singing and worshiping. You need to hear Frank tell the story because it's better than me. Uh, they were singing and worshiping and, and the preacher worship leader said, who wants to be filled with the spirit? If I asked you who wants to be filled with the Spirit, everybody raises their hands, right? Of course I want that. So, so everybody starts walking to the front, and here goes Frank walking to the front, standing up there praying, singing, worshiping God, and all of a sudden, here comes the pastor, and the pastor just kind of touches, touches him on the head. Frank's like, fly, get off my head, right? So, so, so then, then the pastor kind of hits him a little bit harder. Hits him right in the forehead, a little bit harder. Kind of, well, hang on a minute. So he looks up, and here's this pastor, and he's like, son, do you want to be filled by the Spirit? Yeah, I do. I do, says Frank. So the pastor rears back and boom, punches Frank right in the chest. Frank kind of stuttered back. Obviously, he's not a small guy. And all of a sudden, he looks around him and you see what everybody else is doing? They're laying on the ground. And Frank's sitting there scratching his head going, whoops, <laughs> kind of screwed up on that one. He didn't know what he's supposed to do. Why? It's because all these other people were, were trying to find some sort of spiritual experience to realize something that was just made up. It wasn't real. This experience that we have with the Spirit is not some psychedelic drug that makes us feel better about life in ourselves. It's not one where we escape the world. Rather, it's one in which we get to walk in deliverance and in freedom from our sinful self. 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, what is there? Freedom. Not some sort of crazy experience, it's freedom. So when you have the spirit of the Lord in you, which you receive when you're adopted as his son, what you get to experience is freedom. You also get to experience, as Ephesians tells us, the spirit is given as a seal to confirm our adoption. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God gifts you the Holy Spirit to confirm you, to confirm your inheritance, to speak to your spirit and guarantee you are a son of God. That's what he does. The spirit witnesses to your spirit, I am saved, I am redeemed. He is happy with me. When we have the spirit, we know, we know that we are sons of God that he will hold us fast regardless of what life throws at us or how we respond. The Spirit witnesses to our spirit that we are sons of God and we are eternally secure. 
the Spirit of God also grants us a new level of intimacy. I feel like every time I preach, I bring up Exodus chapter 19 and 20, but it's kind of a big thing in the Bible, right? Think about Exodus 19 and 20. What's going on in this, in this story? Remember the Israelites gone through the Red Sea, they've walked through the desert, and now they arrive at Mount Sinai. And they get there, and what happens? The Spirit of God descends on the cloud and lightning and thunder, and God tells the people through Moses, he says, tell the people to get ready. I'm going to talk to them. I got something I'm going to share with them. And so the people are sitting there, they're ready, and all of a sudden God speaks in Exodus 20, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. They hear, the whole nation of Israel hears the audible voice of God. And what do the Israelites do when they hear the audible voice of God? Oh, heck no. I can't stand that. I'm going to die, God. Please don't talk to me anymore. Moses, go up there. I can't, I'm not dealing with that. That's scary. Moses, go up and listen on our behalf and then come back and tell us. When you have the spirit of God in you, it's the same spirit of God that descended on Mount Sinai and he's speaking and witnessing to you. And what does he say? Abba, father. It's literally daddy. The relationship that we have with God is the same God that descended on Mount Sinai. It's not one of fear and trembling, but it's one of daddy. Is that how you view God? Is that your relationship to your father? Now, it's not daddy like my kids play and chase and run around with me. It's not that kind of daddy. It's daddy help me. Daddy save me. It's the cry you make when you hear the news that you feared or you get the diagnosis you dreaded most or you experience the circumstances you never could have imagined happening and you fall on your knees and you cry out, Abba, Father. It's the same cry that Jesus made in the garden. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. That cry you can make because you have the spirit of God in you. We read Romans 8 at the beginning. You have a spirit not of slave again to fear, but of son. No matter what this world brings you, you have nothing to fear because you have received the spirit of sonship leading us to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. Chapter four, verse seven. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. If God is your father, then your inheritance is far greater than you can imagine. You now have God as your father, you have the church as your family, and you have glory as your future. Now, I recognize that in this room, there are a range of fathers. There are those of you in this room who didn't have a dad. There are those of you who had a really bad dad, and there are some of you who had a good dad. And I don't want to belabor the point too long, but here's the thing. Your father in heaven is way better than any kind of father you could ever have on earth. Your heavenly father will never leave you or forsake you. We talked about it early, earlier. He loves you. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, Paul prays that you may have strength. Strength for what? Strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It takes strength from God even to understand the amount of love that he has for you. He has to help you get there. And it's a love that surpasses knowledge. It is wider 
than you can ever get away from. It is longer than you can ever run from. It is deeper and higher. You cannot explore the depths of it. That's your inheritance. That's what you get in God the Father. And it's not an inheritance you experience alone. You've been adopted into a multicultural, multiracial family that expands all of time. We've already talked about family, so I'm not gonna belabor the point, but it's worth remembering that we will get to share in the love and glory of God with one another. But why wait? Why wait till eternity? That's the reason for this community of knuckleheads. That's why we're here. We're here to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to encourage one another, to sing one another. The list goes on and on. But here's the thing. When we do those one another's well, do you know what we get? We get a foretaste of the glory of God that awaits us. So why wait? We have a loving father, a family is our inheritance, and we get glory. 1 John 3, 2, we, we shall be made like our older brother at every point. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Can you imagine what it's gonna be like? Can you imagine what it's gonna be like to look like your older brother? That's what awaits you. It's glory. Glory beyond comprehension. One day we'll be like him. Sin and death will be things of the past. Church, the new experience that is yours in Christ is far greater than you can ask or imagine. Are you currently walking in it? Here's the thing. You don't have to do anything special to make it happen. It's just something that needs to be realized. What if, what if you resolve today to stop and spend the first two to three minutes of your day thinking about what it means to have God as your father? What if that's how you started your day? Two to three minutes. How would that change things? All of a sudden, the opening of your Bible, it wouldn't be some sort of Checkbox to check off the list so that maybe God will hear me and answer one of my prayers. And, and praying wouldn't just be this thing that I do because this is what I do. No, it would be like, man, I'm going to sit down with my dad and I'm going to talk to him for a minute because he's going to tell me what's good for life and what I need to know. And he loves me and he's good. What if you committed to doing that? What if you committed to meditating on the fact that in Christ, God is fully satisfied with you and that you are safe in his hands. He will never lose you. How would that change your affections towards God? If you just stopped and thought a little bit every day about what Christ has done for you and your position in him towards God, how would that change things? Church, we've covered a lot, a whole lot today. One of the cardinal rules of preaching is to not have subpoints to your points. And my subpoints had subpoints. We covered a lot. So by way of quick review, Christ's gracious redemption grants us a new status. Outside of Christ, what are you? You're an enslaved prisoner, an immature child. But God in his kindness and wisdom sent his son to redeem you from your old status and place you into a new relationship with him. When God adopted you, he granted you a new position as a son and not a slave. He gave you new clothes of righteousness pictured by baptism and he gave you a new identity, not driven by race or status or gender, but by sonship. 
you now have an eternal family with a loving father and a merciful older brother. We read the story earlier about an older brother and how he treated his little brother. That's not what our older brother's like. Finally, he's given you a new experience of security and intimacy and inheritance. So in light of all this, in light of all these points, all these subpoints, what do we do with it? Well, the first question is, is are you adopted? Is God your father? Have you, in faith, trusted in the work of Jesus? If God is your father, are you walking in light of your new identity? One of Packer's quotes that I thought was most helpful was that our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Do you understand that you are an adopted son or daughter of God? How well do you grasp that? If you live every decision in light of, what would my father do? How would that change things? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for being a gracious and merciful king who loves us no matter what, for being a good father who draws near, who offers us glory, who offers us community, who offers us love. God, the things that you have for us are far greater than we can even begin to grasp or imagine. So God, may we, by the power of your spirit, work just a little bit every day to meditate on your character and your kindness towards us. And God, as we do that, shape us. Shape us into the image of your son. Father, we're thankful. You are worthy of our worship and adoration. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.